Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Congo's opposition leaders break their commitment to unite behind a single candidate. What will it mean for the DRC's presidential race? Next, we'll discuss how Tanzanian President Magafuli has become more autocratic and less tolerant. What can be done to stop his country's authoritarian slide? Plus, we tackle the role of election observation missions. We have an in-depth conversation on recent critiques about international monitors and where domestic observers fit into the picture. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Tonight, huge crowds turn out in Kinshasa to welcome the opposition team of Felix Chesikedi and Vital Kamahe as they return to campaign for the presidency in next month's polls. Early this month, the Congolese opposition proved all the cynics right. They failed to unite around one single candidate. And so now we are heading into a very critical election, the first time that President Kabila will not be on the ballot, that he will be leaving power after 17 years. And we've got a very fraught electoral landscape and a scattered, divided opposition. So today we're going to talk with Michelle Gavin, who is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, former ambassador to Botswana, former senior director for Africa at the NSC, John Tomaneski, but we're just going to say JT, who is the uh, program director for the International Republican Institution, and Idiot Hassan, who is the director of the Center for Democracy and Development based in Abuja, Nigeria. Let me paint the picture a little bit. President Kabila... Uh, has been in power uh, since 2001, 17 years. There was pressure for him to step down from the region. There were two years of delays before the election date was finally set in December 23rd of this year. And when we look at polling, uh, it's a pretty mixed picture. Felix Chitsakedi, whose father was a very prominent opposition leader, is polling at about 36. The other opposition leader who has pulled out, Vital Khmer, is at 17%. Fayulu is only at 8%. And the incumbent party's candidate, uh, Emmanuel Shadari, is about 16%. Shadari is under European Union sanctions for his role in uh, crushing civil op- civil society opposition over the past couple of years. And so we're at this place with Congo where we're finally having an election, ideally on the 23rd of December, it may slip, uh, but not uh, a, a pretty, not an inspiring choice on the side of the government and an opposition that, like many oppositions, is completely divided and unlikely to be able to uh, unite uh, in the next month. And I should just finally note that Congo, uh, it's a plurality system. So you, you, there is no second round. President Kabila's candidate could walk away with this election with a very low uh, percentage and still be president. JT, what, what is the regional and international posture on this? Well, it's a, it's a mixed one. And I think that's part of the, of the problem. Um, I mean, it's important to note, of course, just understanding the scale of the DRC, I mean, we're talking about a country the size of Western Europe. Uh, when Congo is sick, most of Africa really does have uh, feel the impact. The other element that comes into this is the role that South Africa and Angola have both played throughout this electoral process and throughout the negotiations to get them to this 
election date and time and place. Um, uh, both South Africa and Angola have put money into supporting the electoral process to some degree, um, but certainly have not coordinated very well with their Western counterparts. Um, that disjointedness certainly um, creates some some friction, but also uh, allows uh, DRC to sort of its leadership to choose and pick what to really apply uh, in terms of this overall process. The other thing that comes into this is that um, Kabila, the, the Kabila regime has been very strong in um, avoiding Western support um, for this election, um, even UN support, logistical support. It's important to note that many of the electronic voting machines that were supposed to have been delivered have not arrived, but these are major challenges that will impact even the ability of voting. Because if you don't have paper ballots, and you don't have the machine that can produce the ability for someone to cast their vote, you can't even have an election unless you do something like where you stand in the line, uh, you know, in front of your candidate. It is really a very complicated problem. And the fact that we're starting elections, election campaigning uh, in a couple of days and then an election in theory that's going to be in a month, I think tells you how challenging uh, this process is going to be for the Congolese. One of the challenges the region the Congolese people, the international community have is that uh, they are ready to see Kabila leave, uh, but they have the potential uh, to have a human rights abuser um, replace him. And Michelle, I know you have a really um, sophisticated, very insightful way of thinking about, about these, is this a false dichotomy challenge and how the international community grapples with this? I mean, what, how, how are you thinking about this? I think that uh, it's really important, too, for the international community not to buy into this idea that our choices are a president for life in Joseph Kabila or his handpicked successor, the former interior minister who stands accused of being involved in, in grave human rights abuses, and that's why he's under sanction. It's really important not to allow this, this kind of framing of uh, if you don't like what exists, then here's the unsavory alternative. and. And uh, you have to kind of embrace that. Well, I think we'll have a little time over the, the next month or so. And if the election's delayed, we'll have a little more time yeah. to talk about it. Three years ago, the Tanzanians elected their fifth president, John Magafuli. Have you heard about the new president of Tanzania? They call him the bulldozer, and rightfully so, because the man is bulldozing corruption, laziness, and overspending. He was a former minister of work, and he immediately captured the imaginations of the Tanzanians by his anti-corruption stance, by doing impromptu checks at hospitals, by locking out civil servants. Ultimately, a hashtag uh, surfaced, hashtag what would Magafuli do, which captured at that point the idea that he is setting the country in the right direction. Three years later, a very different hashtag has emerged, hashtag Magafulishness. He has detained journalists. He's arrested the opposition. Uh, he's now embarking on a uh, homophobic cr crackdown. He has threatened multinational companies uh, he's banned of statistics that don't match the official statistics. And uh, right now he's deploying his military to buy all the, cash, uh, the cashew nuts across the country. So I wanted to spend a little time talking about what happens when a country um, that is in some respects on a pedestal uh, for its, its advancements makes such a drastic, dramatic reversal. JT, you've got a lot of experience in East Africa. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, sir, I was certainly present in the country in the last election um, when uh, John Pombe Magafuli came to power. I think the first thing to note is how he attained that nomination through the CCM party uh, convention process. Um, he came out of nowhere. Uh, he certainly wasn't a front runner. And then for him to move forward as this sort of unknown figure or lesser known figure, um, what, what it really is exposed is how weak some of Tanzania's institutions are. So when we have a situation like in South Africa where President Jacob Zuma really pushed the, the limit, at least we saw on a several occasions institutions rise up and say commissions of inquiry, right? Judges coming forward and, and challenging some of this stuff. We're not seeing that in the same uh, vein in a place like Tanzania. I think the hunger for change was important for the Tanzanians, and they wanted that, and that was reflective in the way that that vote laid out, but it also raised a panic. And I think as a, as a result of the panic, you look to your leader to lead, um, but the leader is making decisions on his own, um, and that, that's creating some challenges, I think, in other parts of the country. There is serious slippage in the country in terms of human rights, in terms of governance, uh, democratic standards, and there are challenges. But there is still time to make some changes. I completely agree. I do think that the international community, and in particular the United States, bears some degree of responsibility for, for too many years making Tanzania the sort of um, go-to place for new foreign policy initiatives, especially foreign assistance initiatives, uh, to a point that was absurd and completely out of step with absorptive capacity. When we had all of these indicators, right, that the corruption problem was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we had indicators uh, that there was a willingness in Tanzania to overlook kind of fundamental rights when you look at uh, some of the interventions on Zanzibar, right, and w what has been repeatedly an exercise in denying the people of Zanzibar basic civil and political rights. You had an international community that wanted, that had one narrative about these democratic darlings, as you say, um, and domestically, increasingly, a narrative of tremendous frustration, uh, largely about corruption. And some early intervention might have, have made some sense because what we see now in, in Tanzania, I, I would argue, is pretty clear authoritarianism. When you get tossed into jail for uh, insulting uh, the president, when they get to tell you what the truth is, uh, on statistics, and you can't you can't ever challenge it. This is, I mean, that's pretty Orwellian. I, I think that there's this imperative from the international community to find, to find and define winners. Right? We decide who is the the good the good country, um, and there's a huge amount of problems with that. And I think in retrospect, and I worked in the the past administration, Michelle, you worked in the past administration. I think we just have to be a little more honest about that our country and countries in sub-Saharan Africa, it's not a clean, it's not a clean story. Like we all have our flaws and challenges and we need to work on them. And if we continue to say, this is a good country and this is a not so good country, then we set ourselves up for these big reversals and surprises, which maybe in retrospect, weren't that, that big, right? Certainly. And also being more uh, intellectually honest about why you're a winner. So are you a winner? because you are a country, a huge country the size of France and Germany together, and you border all of these other troubled countries, you serve as a home for refugees, a sense of stability, uh, you have challenges of Islamic extremism moving down the Swahili coast from Somalia, obviously the challenges in, 
in Kenya. So you choose a winner, you try to put things behind there, but as a result, we get something on the other side that's quite ugly. Um, and it's the antithesis of what we should be doing, course, right? Yes. Because ex- for all those reasons, you're invested in this country's success, which is all the more reason then to, to be honest and clear about where things are going off the rails. Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing for, for Tanzania moving forward is that we clearly have to acknowledge the problem uh, <laughs> diplomatically uh, because I still get a sense that the outrage, the voices uh, hasn't reached the level in which it should. And I hope it doesn't wait until six months before the election, um, which is usually when these voices start coming out of Washington in a stronger clip. So do you think the international community is doing enough to address Magafuli's human rights abuses? Some of the interventions have also been very, very good and hacked. For instance, the Danish government um, withdrawing their $9.8 million grant on the attempt by the World Bank, several statements issued by lawyers and human rights activists, both in the country and on the continent. So what more do you think they should do? There are two things involved here. One, we should be very, very careful that in the guise of, of addressing some of these anomalies, we do not also allow more rights violations, unintended consequences to occur. And these unintended consequences will have effect more on the citizens than on the ruling class itself. There is a need to have more statements, more very strong statements, more restriction on the state and on several of its personnel. Um, President Magofuli and his coterie of, uh, of um, administrators or policy officials should be further sanctioned, should be sanctioned both individually by countries and maybe refusing them invites into most of the important happenings on the continent, outside of the continent. It's very, very key. It's very, very imperative for Africa as a whole, the African Union, the Regional Economic Commission, in East Africa, the East Africa Commission, all of them will also have to come together to decry some of these human rights abuses because charity begins at home. It's not enough for Africa to always outsource its own responsibility. So the onus is actually on the African Union and the Regional Economic Community and some of the very large African states to also speak out against some of these human rights violations. It's also about supporting civil society. We're only perpetuating this problem by focusing just on the head of state. And, you know, what what could we be doing to create domestic voices? And I think they are there and they are trying. They are trying to get out. There's a really good article in African Arguments recently that talks about this nascent opposition. But how do how does the international community support this? Right. Well, you're absolutely right. There are all kinds of patriotic uh, Tanzanians from different walks of life who are um, certainly not interested in being kind of complacent while they watch their democracy sort of dissolve before their eyes. If the U.S. wants to really understand who these folks are, where the the new sources of potential 
influence that can help drive the national dialogue in a more constructive direction, you have to be there and be talking to people. You have to have contacts and be trusted and have convening power. And that really does require skillful diplomacy. You can't parachute in your principles, you know, for a two-day visit. That that's only effective when the ground has been prepared by a, a team that's been there, and the the disdain uh, that this administration has expressed for diplomatic engagement is is um, incomprehensible to me. On the programmatic side, I mean, how do we work with civil society? How do we work with the opposition and the ruling party? I actually think a lot of the answer to this to the Magafuli challenge is actually going to come out of the CCM, um, as well as the civil society, as well as the opposition. And you're absolutely right. Engaging with all political parties um, and not picking winners um, actually is what's important right now. You need to have those discussions. You need to help parties develop the internal mechanisms to work out these issues internally. There's an, an amazing crop. And we see this throughout Africa, by the way. I'm sure Bobby Wine would, would raise this. You know, we have Abella Butienga who runs Tanzania Bora Initiative. We've got a number of youth who are both in Zanzibar and on the mainland, who can step in and help. How do we uh, move that forward? And there are efforts to build civil society and work with them. I really like that. I think that it's, Michelle, your point about engaged diplomacy and JT, I think it's also about this facilitation role that we can have because ultimately these are African, Africans are going to take the lead and resolve these problems. It's not going to be the international community, but we can have a convening role and a facilitation role and a supportive role if, 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 if wanted, if requested. Let's talk a, a little bit about international observation for elections. Uh, it's come under scrutiny uh, in the last year, particularly because of Kenya, uh, where the initial comments from international observers suggested that the election was largely free, fair, and credible. And then the Supreme Court uh, overturned the election results. This is the first time that an African presidential election has been invalidated by a court. After the August 8th elections, Odinga alleged fraud into Kenya's electoral database and tampering with the results. It has sparked a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of, I think, well-timed, well-deserved, long-overdue thoughtfulness about what is the role of international observation and how do they partner with domestic observ observers. And it's really important that we talk about this right now because we have just between the end of this year and next year, elections in DRC, Nigeria, South Africa, also Botswana, Malawi, Mauritania, Guinea-Bissau, Namibia, and Mozambique. So JT, on the spot, this is uh, the challenge that your organization focuses on. How are you thinking about where to go with election observation? Well, we're definitely hitting into that rotation of that sort of years, those two or three years where you just get that massive explosion of important African elections. Not to say that most that all elections aren't important, but certainly there are ones that you watch particularly because they do set trends uh, for the others. Um, and I do think uh, international observation has to adapt. Times are different. The challenges are different. Uh, autocratic regimes have said, well, we won't just break the law. We'll just make the law and then we'll manipulate it to fit the outcome that we want. We'll put our finger on the scales, not heavily, but just touch it just enough to avoid runoffs and to do other things. And I think in the case of Kenya, it was true that things moved too fast um, 
for the for the missions on the ground. I think it's important to look at who your leadership is, the role that they're going to play. Then the second piece of this is getting on the ground early, for instance, in the case of Zimbabwe, um, but in a number of other elections, you need to be there, not just on election day, acknowledging that the elections are a cycle and a process and programming accordingly. So getting those domestic observers empowered, uh, engaged with some key analysts who are there in advance to really feed some facts into the system, some technical expertise, and then to talk with political leaders and civil society about, here are some things you should be looking at. Uh, it's not our country. We're just here to give some advice and some ideas, but you run with it. And I think that interaction is also clearly important. And then maybe just the final point is digital. Too often we're watching African countries buy Cadillacs when all they need is a Chevy, you know, a small Chevy, you know, like a little one. And but, you know, but some even argue, and we've seen this, the Gambians even say, we would rather vote with our marbles than buy some of these expensive machines and have all of these problems in terms of, did the electronic transmission of results work properly? Were there people hacking into our servers? Um, observation groups, one, will need to watch that, but also observation groups need to be conscious when they're making recommendations that it's not always about technology as the solution to the problem. JT, just because I want to make sure our audience doesn't think you were making uh, light of voting with their marbles, that was the Gambian voting system. Can you just explain uh, how Gambians yes, vote? Absolutely. Gambians, they, they, take, they take marbles and they put it into a container of choice of their candidate. Um, and many people will argue about, well, you know, is that sophisticated or not? But let's make a point here. Uh, Yahya Jame, who was a dictator for 22 years, um, was voted out of office. He wasn't pushed. Now, ultimately, he had to get a little, little nudge from ECOWAS. Uh, but certainly, on the vote tally and the way this all worked, it was a clear victory shown and, by turnout. And extraordinarily rare to see an autocrat be pushed out for an election. And they did it with a very basic system. I think that's the point that we're talking that about, is, point, is that yes. you don't need to have you know, the top of the line stuff. Now, I'm going to make a confession. I've never observed an election. JT and I may solve that problem soon. Uh, but so my job, both as an analyst and as a policymaker, was to read election observer reports and try to make sense of how do you instrumentalize them or address them in a policy process. And Michelle, you've probably done election monitoring and been on the policy side. How do you how do you put together a, a policy when you have an election observer mission, you know, already make the judgment about the election quality? Having the perspective on the ground and particularly when there's really good connectivity with domestic observers um, that can help contextualize some of the information, uh, it, it can be wildly helpful. But I do think everything from the way we talk about these missions, right, so that we don't sort of um, set up a, a narrative where it sounds like, you know, where we're sort of at the Olympics and are, what are the international judges uh, going to say as if, as if right. that were the point. It can, and it, you know, when done clumsily, sound really patronizing. Um, I also think, uh, you know, this this point that JT made about Leadership is a is a really good one about the hierarchies that emerge in these missions, right? And whose whose voice gets heard, and who ultimately gets to decide on these conclusions. These are these are pretty complicated issues, I think, um, and very important ones. But I would just say that I think uh, the recent um, elections in Cameroon uh, show us that there is 
there is this desire for an international seal of approval, even if you have to basically make it up out of whole cloth and, and have these sort of <laughs> imposters running around. Um, it is, uh, it's a part of the, the landscape and it's an opportunity, right, to get smarter, uh, to support the forces for democracy on the ground. This is a really important opportunity if we do it right. It seems to me that rigging has become more centralized and election monitoring has become more decentralized, more diffuse. And there are some opportunities there, but there are some really significant challenges because so much of election rigging is not happening at the polling stations anymore. It's happening in a technical way uh, or it's happening you know, at, at Capitol and our domestic and, elect and international election observers are spread out all over the country with little visibility into the actual mechanics. How do... How do we do? How do we deal with that? Yeah, I mean, look at the most recent uh, sets of governorship uh, by you know those off-cycle elections we saw in Nigeria, whether it's Oshun Akiti on down the line, where the observers are inside the polling unit, but just like twenty feet away, people are passing out money. So you're looking at the wrong thing. So it is important to adapt. It's important again uh, to coordinate and engage. But I would also say, and this is something that Facebook. Google, Amazon, other groups, the big tech firms need to engage on, and they are increasingly, but they need to do more as they move forward, is this issue of the speed of communication and how we communicate. Uh, I loved the final report that we produced, which was 60 plus some pages of lots of data and facts, and it would make any policymaker, any policy wonk like yourself, Judd, very happy uh, to dig into it and look at all the footnotes. But uh, is that the most effective? I start with the footnotes. Yes, I know you do. Yeah, you, you go right to the back. Uh, but I think that what's key here is um, remembering who the customer is, as Michelle said. And so is, is really a, a regular voter on the ground in Zimbabwe, in DRC, going to just look at that report? No. They're actually going to look at the headline of the press conference and the statement that's made. When I think about the, the future of election monitoring, the question that comes to me most is, whose election is it anyway? And for a very long time, the international community has been the observers of choice, or you know, a first among equal, and the validators of choice, or the first among equal. I think that we can actually flip the script a little bit. I'm hearing from IRI and NDI that there is a little more of how do citizens provide the data and do the observation. I know that is was a critical part of the 2015 election in Nigeria. It will be a part of the 2019 election. You know, I think that we need to figure out how to be supportive and not in the lead. Michelle, I don't know if you've given thoughts to, to some of these questions about the role of the domestic observer in these elections. I can't think of a more important one, right? Because Ultimately, for, for any society to be able to move forward, um, it's the citizens who have to decide that this was an exercise uh, with integrity, right, and that they can believe in it. Um, so whether it's helping to sort through some of these highly technical or technological issues, which can be these rabbit hole subplots. So I think there's a lot of... Um, in that, in that space, kind of technical assistance just to, just to provide some frameworks to help uh, domestic observers make their own judgments. I think that that's essential and that there's a, a tremendous appetite for that on the ground. So it's, it's, you know, pushing on an open door. JT? The more data is shared, the more it's open, uh, the more it's credible and validated, um, and, and, and then that's produced by local groups, the better the process will be. 
We have seen organizations like NDI, IRI, and others do this, uh, but more needs to be done. And and certainly, um, we're just at the beginning stages, I think, of of also tuning uh, the international missions in such a way that it's more responsive to that. So what's the role of domestic observer and citizen advocacy in election monitoring? Well, the role of the domestic observers are what and citizens' advocacy cannot be overemphasized at every point in time. While international observations are quite important and they do add value to the whole electioneering process, it also has got its limitation in terms of legitimacy, in terms of accessibility, in terms of the ability to reach all parts of the country, and in terms of communicating with the audience. Right. Yes, and more and more international observation is also beginning to be politicized by the ruling classes in most of African countries. So there is an effort to delegitimize these, uh, most of the missions. So in order to be very, very proactive, what it means is that we have to start giving more emphasis on domestic election observation. They observe all the processes from the voter registration process. They are able to assist the election management body in terms of looking at, in terms of even detecting the non-genuine voters on the register and they follow all the processes leading to the election day itself, where several of these observer groups are able to cover every inch of the country and bring out real-time information again. Then there is also the issue of the fact that they have credibility and legitimacy in most instances to the election process. The people do understand them. They are able to call people to order. They are able to directly mediate not necessarily at the central level, which the focus is always on, but on all the subnational levels. This is one way domestic election observers add to the whole process by their own knowledge of what is actually obtainable, by having regional experts to look at these issues and able to intervene at every point in time. Particularly, marrying the citizens' advocacy with the observation mission, these are very, very important things. So they are not just doing voter education, they are also having advocacy, they are being the watchdog. And this advocacy that arises, it's what actually allows for post-election accountability. Well, we will continue to have, I think, this conversation as we talk about the upcoming elections. But I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of JT and Michelle and Adayat for joining us today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa.